Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So what I really found is, you know, everybody talks about Zers and Generation X and all this and the different boomers and just the differences between them. But what I really found is at the core, everybody has almost the same set of values at the core. They all want to work and have their work appreciated. They all want to be heard at work. They want to be considered, have their thoughts and ideas considered. They want to be paid fairly for what they do, you know, equal wages, equal pay. They want to see opportunities that are available to them and that people are mentoring them. You know, and so those kind of core values and like you had talked about a little bit about like, you know, what do you under, what do you understand your core values to be? What are you going to align to? Right. I found that those are consistent no matter what generation you're in. And then there's differences, you know, at each generation, the way they communicate and different things, which are more superficial. And you can deal with those at a different level. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And as we get nearer to Thanksgiving, one word really sticks out to me, and I'm sure it's not just unique to me, but that word is gratitude. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what I'm feeling today as I get to welcome our guest for this episode. I'm feeling gratitude because as I know we're gonna discuss in this conversation, every day, every hour, every minute, every second of our time is so fleeting. And before we got on here today, I was reflecting on my gratitude because she is choosing to take the time out of her life to talk to me, and that makes me so thankful. And that guest today is former Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett. During her active duty tenure, she served as the Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command and as the Navy Cybersecurity Division Director and Deputy CIO on the Chief of Naval Operations Staff. In her last position in the U.S. Navy, she led the Navy's strategic development and execution of digital and cybersecurity efforts, enterprise information technology improvements, and cloud policy, and governance for 700,000 personnel across a global network. But more recently, Danelle was diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer and has been sharing her very personal battle online to remind us all 
to not take any moment for granted. Two years ago, she published Rock the Boat, Encourage Innovation, Lead Change, and Be a Successful Leader. And it's been an Amazon bestseller list in several different categories, and rightfully so, because the book is amazing. And the insights she provides are some of the things we're going to talk about today. I'm so humbled to welcome you to the show, Janelle. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here and to share your journey. Yeah, thanks. It's an honor to be here. Fun to talk to you. Well, the honor is all mine. I'm really grateful for you making the time. Um, we're going to get into a lot of your background and um, kind of the journey you're on right now. But um, before we do that, something I uncovered while I was kind of looking at where I wanted to take this conversation with you is that you and I are both from Buffalo, New York. I don't know. Oh, if no you way. Yeah. So I was born in North Tonawanda. I only uh-huh. lived there. I only lived there till I was five. So I can't say I'm I'm a, a Buffalo. Buffalonian. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Right. But um, but have that in common. My whole family's from that area. And most of my family is disappointed that I'm not a Buffalo Bills fan. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, they all they all I mean, everybody's coming out of the work now. They're all fans since the Bills are doing so well. But um, I've lived in the D.C. area for so long that I'm a DC sports fan, uh, true and true. Um, but how long, how long did you live in Buffalo? Um, well, so I lived in Buffalo until I went away to college. And then when I came back, my dad wasn't in great health. So when I retired out of the military after 30 years, I came back to sort of help out and to be around a little bit more and stuff like that. I mean, nobody moves back to Buffalo. Right. And so, um, it's just kind of like one of those things, either you come back for a specific reason. And in my case, it was family. So, yeah. Yeah, those winters are uh, are rough, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and my husband's from Columbia. He's from South America, and he gave me sort of a latitude that he was not going to live above, and he definitely stretched it with this one. So he was doing it, taking one for the team to move above the latitude he normally finds acceptable. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm not now. I'm curious where where did that latitude uh, end? Yeah, like DC is pretty much where he's that's about <laughs> as high as he wants to go, right? That's yeah. Do you, you introduce him to lake effects now? Yeah, exactly. The, the whole <laughs> snowblower concept was foreign to him. Yeah, that's right. Another thing I want to ask you about before we kind of jump into some of these conversations, you share and you, you're very uh, you're very active on social media on LinkedIn. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But one of the things you just recently shared is you received a letter from Tom Hanks, which is absolutely, absolutely cool. One of my favorite actors, but he he sent it because um, you spent a day on one of his recent movies as an extra and we're kind of conversating with him and his and his wife how did you get an opportunity to do that and what was that like yeah so um, one of the things I always wanted to do is be an actress right and so you can't really do that when you're on active duty right and so I said well when I retire I'm going to be an extra in movies because you know dumpy lady crossing street number two that's a role I've been preparing for my whole life (laughs) so I'm like right out of central casting I'm all good to go right and so I found out how you learn how to be an extra in movies. And so I've done about eight different movies. And that was a, a movie called A Man Called Otto. And it was filming outside of Pittsburgh. And so a lot of times when you're an extra in movies, you're just in a big crowd scene and you can barely see, you know, like yourself when the when the movie comes out or you end up on the cutting room floor. But sometimes they have what are called featured extras where you're in a small scene with the main actors. And in this case, I happen to be with only two other extras in a scene with Tom Hanks in the pastry scene. And and if you blink, you'll miss me. It doesn't take long. You know, I'm just sort of stacking the shelves in the background. But in between takes, it was really wonderful because, you know, we had all day together and he would just chat it up. And his wife, Rita Wilson, was there, too. And, you know, we chatted about his career and my career and different things and where we had things in common, you know, like where he did Band of Brothers and Navy movies and stuff like that. And, and I was asking him about, you know, what he 
found out what, what was most uh, interesting to him about his career. And he said he was just shocked that he kept getting good roles. And to hear somebody that famous <laughs> and that good say something like that is really just a humble man, very nice man. But anyways, he talked about how he loves antique typewriters. And he actually wrote that letter to me on it, one of his antique typewriters that he takes with him on when he goes on sets and stuff like that. So it was really, really special to get that letter from him. And the fact that he even remembered me, I mean, he probably meets a thousand extras. So it was just really sweet of him to do that. Just a really kind man. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And and he reached out to you to tell you um, how much he he wanted to convey supporting you. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about the journey you're you're on right now from a health perspective? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Last I was perfectly healthy until last May when I started to get like a little tingling in my left hand, right? And I was a little worried that it might be ALS or MS or something like that. I have a history of that in my family. So mm -hmm. I was getting the doctor to kind of check it out. But before that could happen, they gave me an MRI and determined like within three months that I had, had a brain brain cancer, glioblastoma, which is a terminal brain cancer. There's no cure for it right now. So you have a life, life expectancy of about 12 to 18 months. And it's really super aggressive. And so what they do is they basically they rip your head open and take the tumor out, you know, and then you go on 45 days of radiation and chemotherapy and hope that staves it off. And so I'm going to have my next uh, checkup, my next MRI in about a week. And then they'll determine then if I can go on a trial drug. You know, they've got a lot of trial drugs, but right now it's currently incurable. They could just go, sort of stave it off with buy you some time. And if I can just buy time, buy time until better treatment comes along, maybe it'll become manageable like HIV, right? And and it'll become a disease that you can manage with just drugs and genotherapy and things like that. But anyways, it's a real shocker. You know, um, you don't expect those, that kind of news. Um, but one thing I'll tell you and your listeners is, you know, I've always been a carpe diem kind of gal. And that's sort of my motto, you know, seize the day, do things now, don't wait. So even all the years that leading up to this cancer diagnosis, I never waited for anything because I said to myself, why, well, why wait? I mean, you don't have to wait. You can make all the excuses in the world to wait to do something. You can talk yourself out of anything. You can say, you know, I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have, you know, my kids' commitments at school. I have this, I have that. You can find a reason to not do something any day of the week. But what you need to do is flip that on its side all the time and find a reason to do it. Find the reason that you have to do it now and you can't wait. You know, you can make money later. You can replace money. You can't replace time, you know. And so I've always been of the ilk that just do it now and have fun and whatever it costs in terms of time or money or or personal risk to your career or whatever. Just do it because the risk of not doing it is much greater. You know, you lose out on life opportunities and memories. And that's a risk that I've never wanted to take. So I, like if I died tomorrow, I'd feel completely fulfilled, even though like my brain cancer has taken away my ability to walk and use my left arm. I'm still traveling. I'm still planning to go to Venice with my husband and my family. You know, I'm still living to live, not living to die. You know what I'm saying? I'm staying alive to live. I'm not staying alive to die. So you just take every day you can that you're vertical and appreciate that and don't take anything for granted and, and just always be there to say, yeah, you know, you may have terminal brain cancer, but you're not dead yet. You got plenty of life left in you. You've got plenty of time to do things. And who knows if a treatment comes along, you may be around a lot longer than you think. It's such a powerful message. It's something that, excuse me, as a, as a parent, I actually think about regularly because I look around and, and we, were, we were talking about it before we, uh, before we hit record here, it, just, just being a parent, taking advantage of some of those moments and really being present in those moments is something I, I really struggled with. Um, but my wife's done a really good job of kind of reminding me of, it's not always going to be like this. You can lose out on time and lose out on opportunities and, um, makes me be very intentional 
about that. And I mentioned that you are very, uh, very much engaged in kind of trying to mentor individuals, especially on LinkedIn. Um, and I want to go through some of the things because every day you, you put out something and the, the message that you just conveyed to the listeners is one of the things I actually highlighted that I thought was fantastic. You, you highlighted a Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And I've heard that before, but it's always a good reminder. I mean, we all we all know that. We all know we need to take action, but it's always a good reminder. And I, I convey that to my kids, especially my nine-year-old. I'll say, look, I mean, yes, you might've missed that opportunity before, but if you don't do it now, you're not gonna get that opportunity as you move you're forward. Right. So let's let's just execute on it. Let's go and do that. What is that something that you learned throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I've always sort of been that kind of person that looked at things in terms of, you know, I'm not afraid to take risk. You know, I'll do something with 40% of the facts, 40% of the resources, 40% of the whatever. And if I fail, I fail. So what? You know, I kind of think about it like, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I could get brain cancer and die. Okay, all right. You know what I mean? You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, in most cases, we make up the worst case scenario and we we it we use that as a as a mechanism or a crutch to deter us from doing something. When in reality, we should be looking at, you know, what's the worst case scenario if I don't do that? If I don't take that chance, if I don't take that risk, then, you know, my life could be completely different, you know, if I don't take that chance. And in most cases, you know, you take a chance and say you fail or you embarrass yourself or something happens and it doesn't turn out the right way. Because a lot of us are real type A people, we'll play that movie again and again and again in our head that failure and we focus on that failure when the reality is everybody else has long since moved on. Nobody remembers that. You're the only one who remembers it. You're the only one playing in your head. You're the only one beating yourself up about it. I mean, if nobody's going to remember that in two years, what are you worried about? Why do you even care? You know what I mean? So you just got to let it be water off a duck's back, take the failure, fail with grace, move on, figure out what it is that you really want to do and put your juice there because you can't put everything everywhere. I mean, there's a ton of stuff you want to do. You got to really prioritize it and you got to prioritize it in my opinion, around the people you love and the relationships you have, not around the things you want and the money you want or the position you want, because those are all very um, transitory things. They're transactional and they're not as important in the long run. I mean, in the long run, what matters is what happens with those relationships and the memories you make there and how you impact other people's lives, how you can improve somebody else's life even with a small little action that you may take that may seem completely insignificant to you, but it makes a world of difference to somebody else. And that's what I tell people all the time too. you know, look during the day for those kind of things that may seem insignificant is insignificant moments, but are actually the most significant thing you'll do that day. And they're usually revolving around relationships or things you do for other people. One of the books I'm, I'm reading right now, it actually talked about the and I think I forget how they how they um, the terminology they used um, maybe it's negative bias and I think we as human beings always look at the negative things and it's kind of innate in us um, from our ancestors because they needed to look at the negative things to survive right the positive right, things right, were right, there right. They, they're not going to yeah. they're not going to kill them but the the negative things they needed to pay attention to but the uh, the author kind of did a really good job of talking about how that that's no longer necessary. Right. We can right, focus on positive yeah. things. And it's so challenging for us, I think, to kind of change our brains and try to be kind of looking at the positive things. And and like you, like you mentioned, 
how are you able to kind of reframe things? Is, is there something that you've learned throughout your careers? Is it just something that came to you? How, how have you been able to focus on those positives, even in the midst of the negative that is certainly there? Yeah, so you tr- you got to train your brain to look at the positive. It, like you said, it's not a natural thing. Everybody always looks mm-hmm. to the warts. They want to point out warts. They look to the negative. They look for the reason to say no or whatever. You got to really train your brain to say no. I'm you know the minute your your brain starts to go negative, you got to flip it and look for the three positives. So I always try to find three positives out of any ne- negative situation that comes my way. You know, if I just failed at something, okay, what are the three positives I'm taking out of that, right? And then I don't focus on the negative. I don't focus on it at all. It's in my rearview mirror. I can't change it. Can't do anything about it. I can only learn from it. And you do have to learn from your failures. Don't get me wrong. It's not like you have to ignore failures. You fail with grace, meaning you show people how to fail, recover, learn from that, and do something about it, right? But you don't focus on it, and you don't let failure define you. A lot of people will have a failure, and they it becomes for them a really defining moment in their life when it really is very insignificant in the big long-term you know, continuum of your life and you can't focus that way. So you do have to train your brain. So I've always sort of felt that way, focusing on the three positives, even out of the worst situation can kind of get you out of that negative mindset that you might have a tendency to fall back on. And some people have more of a tendency to go there too, because it becomes a crutch. You know, it becomes a way for them to justify their failure, to, to exempt themselves from responsibility for their failure, accountability for their failure, or to not move on to kind of like, just be like, well, I guess this is as good as I can get. And you just can't be accepting that way, you know? And so when you're in a leadership position, people look for you to be positive. They look for you, as as, as Colin Powell says, um, being positive is a force multiplier, right? And so they look for you to be positive. They look for you to look to the, the good side of things. Not to say that you don't look at the bad and understand the bad and what could happen there, but that you don't focus all of your attention and effort there. You focus on the good part and you focus on the positive things that can come out of that. One of the things that you talked about in your book was don't be a jerk, which I love. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I love that one. I, I, I so let's be clear. I'm not a I'm not a Baltimore Ravens fan, but I've gone to a Baltimore Ravens game before, and anybody who's gone to a Ravens game knows that's one of the rules they have in the stadium is don't be a jerk. And I think it's just it's that's so funny. simple. It's so simple, but it's great advice because I mean, people don't want to work with people that are jerks. People don't want to be around people that they don't like. They they just it's a personal and professional thing. What have you found can, can keep you from having that? Cause I think we all have that, that component in us, especially in stressful situations. For sure. How, how do you kind of squash that in a, in a situation that you just want somebody just made a mistake and it's so obvious. And you're just thinking, my goodness, like I, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. We'd be on our way now. Um, how do you slow that down and, and be positive in those situations? Well, you know, it's funny because we've all worked for jerks and we all have an inner uh-huh. jerk, right? Yes. And sometimes our inner jerk comes out like when, like you said, when you're super frustrated, you'll get uh-huh. sarcastic or you may get snippy with somebody or you may lash out at somebody or you may, in the worst case scenario, some people are screamers, you know what I mean? They act really jerky, right? And the, the issue with most real true jerks is they don't even know they're jerks. They have zero self-awareness. So <laughs> they don't even understand that they're being a complete a-hole or a jerk, excuse my yeah. French, right? And so sometimes... You really need to pull them inside and say, hey, man, you know, you are really acting in, unprofessionally. People don't know how to act with you. You're unpredictable. And being specific with them about what their jerky behaviors are that are causing disruption is really important. You know, you say things like, hey, you know, when you're sarcastic like that, everybody tunes you out. So 
So your message gets lost in your delivery and you had a really good message, but nobody heard it. So you can, there's ways to talk to people who are jerks like that. And sometimes if they're like true jerks to the core, they're going to ignore you. And so you have to work around them or through them or just ignore them, you know, and when they're, when they're jerky behavior, you call them out on it in a meeting. You don't let them get away with it. You know, people who let jerks get away with being jerks, that's just as bad. You know what I mean? So as a leader, you need to call people out right there if they're being jerks and just say, hey, that's an inappropriate comment or, hey, that's not helpful at this time. Can you offer something that's helpful? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so when it comes to the um, the jerk um, who's like your boss, though, sometimes it's hard when your boss is the jerk and you got to call him out. That's when you do it separately on the side. Or what you do is you find somebody who is close to that jerky boss, who that jerky boss listens to, and you go to them and you help them use that guy to influence the behavior of the jerk, you know? Oh, and so, so you try to find other people who can help influence that behavior and change it. Hopefully, Sometimes people never change and they're going to be a jerk forever. And then you just got to kind of deal with that and you kind of try to shield the people that work for you from the behavior, the jerky behavior that these guys demonstrate. It feels like up until recently, emotional intelligence wasn't something that was really prioritized as, as a leader per se. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, not to call you old, but you've had, you had a long career in the military and the Navy. Um, so you've, you've kind of gone through the iterations of what you want to call what leadership has looked like or what good leadership has looked like. Why do you think EQ has become so important? Why do you think it wasn't prioritized per se, maybe 20, 30 years ago? Well, I think 20, 30 years ago, there was a different style of management. There was the Jack Welsh off with their heads kind of leadership and people respected that. And delivering on product and delivering on services and making money was the priority, right? Now it's kind of shifted to show that, you know, you got to appreciate the talent you have because there's such competition for the good talent out there. And the good talent is what's going to make your business money. And so people have come to realize that if you treat people poorly, they're going to vote with their feet and go somewhere else because there's plenty of opportunity for them. So emotional intelligence among leaders has become really important. Probably in the last, I would say, 10 years, you'll see a lot of articles in HR magazines and things like that talking about emotional intelligence and how you train people to think that way, like your leaders, your mid-level leaders, because you got to start at the low deck plate level leadership and then the mid-level leaders and have that translate all the way up to the senior leadership. And it's really interesting because I sit on the progressive board and the progressive CEO is probably the most, one of the best leaders I've ever seen in my life. She actually, um, her name's Trisha Griffith and people love to work for her because her emotional intelligence is off the charts. And she's very in tune with her whole workforce. And she's got like thousands and thousands of people all over the world that work for her. But she sets the tone herself by being that leader herself and showing that you can do that and be successful. Let me just give you an example of what she did. Her husband, her, she was in line for the CEO job. And you know, as a woman, that's pretty tough anywhere to be in line for a CEO job of a company the size of Progressive, a $70 billion company, right? And so she um, was in line with another gentleman and they were both doing their final interviews with the board to see who would get picked. And they'd been grooming these guys for a couple of years to be CEO. And her son was like a division one um, football player selectee for college. And he was having his last high school football game on the day she was supposed to have her CEO interview. And she called them and she said, I'm going to have to take myself out of the running to be CEO because I can't miss my son's football game. Right now, think about that, the kind of commitment you have to your family and the emotional intelligence that you need to show to demonstrate in that situation, understanding what that means to the organization who wanted you so bad for that job 
and what it meant to your family. And she has five kids, right? And so they were able to switch her date and they ended up making her the CEO. And she carried that sort of philosophy on how you can do that work-life balance, how you can have that emotional intelligence and be a leader and be successful. She quadrupled the profits of that company in like five years, you know what I mean? And so my point is there, you have to walk the walk with your leadership. You can't just say things like, hey, people are my most important thing. And then you never get a, an appraisal done on time. You never get bonuses in on time. You give people a hard time if they want to take vacations. You know what I mean? You can't be like that. You've got to walk the walk with it. And so when you do see leaders that do it and can do it successfully, a huge company, it's very inspiring. Yeah. It, I always think it's so important to have that alignment, right? Whenever you, whenever I make decisions, I always know what my priorities are and I'm able to make a decision pretty quickly because I can say, does it align with this? Does it align with this? Does it align with this? If, it, hey. if it's yes, then, then I can do it. And if it's no, then I can't. And sometimes it really just is that simple. And obviously I don't like operating in gray area. I don't know how many people do. I, I would love to keep everything black and white, but it's not sure. always as black and white. But I think if you have those things that you can align to, it's so important. And as you were talking, one of the things I started thinking about too is over those past 20, 30, 40 years, there's been different generations that have come into the workforce. And I think that has really catalyzed the need for emotional intelligence as a leader how did you adapt to the different types of generations that you had to oversee during your career? Yeah. So what I really found is, you know, everybody talks about Zers and Generation X and all this and the different um, you know, boomers and just the differences between them. But what I really found is at the core, everybody has almost the same set of values at the core. They all want to work and have their work appreciated. They all want to be heard at work. They want to be considered, have their thoughts and ideas considered. They want to be paid fairly for what they do, you know, equal wages, equal pay. They want to see opportunities that are available to them and that people are mentoring them, you know. And so those kind of core values and um, like you had talked about a little bit about like, you know, what do you under, what do you understand your core values to be? What are you going to align to, right? I found that those are consistent no matter what generation you're in. And then there's differences, you know, at each generation, the way they communicate and different things, which are more superficial and you can deal with those at a different level. But what I really found is that if you address those core issues, you know, and you're, you're true to that, and those are the values of your organization and everybody sees how you're aligning their desires and your desires to the values of the organization and you're producing, you know, you're doing good work, then that's really something that, that they can get behind. So obviously emotional intelligence is so important, but what are some of the other traits that you think are important for good leaders to possess? I mean, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but um, what are some of the things that you think are are really vital to be a good leader? Well, for me, it, you have to show courage, right? You have to show integrity. You have to show transparency. You have to show empathy. And you have to show that you have a strategic vision something like innovative or something that people want to get behind. Like, what do you consider the most, some of the most important? Like when you have a good leader that you like to work for, what are the things they do? That you well, I mean, one of the things that you touched on there, transparency. I love when leaders are transparent, whether it's good or bad. I always want to know exactly where I stand, where the organization stands, because then I can make actual decisions based on real-time intelligence, not just things that I assume. So for me, transparency is so important um, and communication. I think those two go hand in hand too, but you you can be transparent and still not be a good communicator because of the other, well, the other thing that you talked about too, having a strategic vision, because let's say you're you're transparent and it's it's a negative thing 
and you don't really communicate it well. And then at the same time, you don't follow in with some type of plan. So now, even though you're being transparent, I don't, I'm kind of feeling like, well, we don't really have good leadership right now, but where are we going? Exactly. So what I would want to hear in that moment is this is, this is what's happened. I'm being transparent with you. I'm going to communicate all the different details around it for orientation purposes to the group. And then these are the strategic plan or these are the strategic path pathways that we've chosen to to either remediate or, or take advantage of or whatever it is, good or bad, to move forward. And as long as you have those those pieces in place, that's that to me is what's most important. And then finally, I I think, and we we touched on it with the the emotional intelligence, but I I think just having somebody who understands that um that that people have different priorities, right? So you're going to have leaders where their number one priorities work and you know what, that's okay for them. And you're going to have other people where their number one priorities are family and that's okay too. So I think knowing that there is going to be a, a diversified group within your organization and, and aligning to that, whether that, whether that's right, supporting right. that work-life balance um, understanding, I, I always thought it was important. I remember I, I've had multiple coaches that have said this um, playing sports growing up that they treated people fair, but not equal because you can't treat everybody the exact same, but you can yeah, treat right. you can treat everybody fairly. And I think that that knowing that, yeah. exactly. So I think knowing that to me is so important. I'm curious what were what were some of the good leaders that that you had, or what are some of the mentors that you had, and you what are the things you felt like you really took from them? Well, I always had mentors. It was funny, like um, most of my mentors were guys, actually, because you know it's only ten percent of the navy was was female mm-hmm. when I came in, and so. You know, it, it kind of didn't matter what the gender was as long as they were a good leader. But, you know, they were really, you know, some of them were really blunt with you, too, because I always struggled with my weight. My, I, don't, I don't know if you can see my face right now, but it looks like a big pumpkin because of all the steroids I'm on. Yeah. But, you know, um, I always struggle with my weight. And, you know, they would tell me right out flat, you know, you're going to hurt your career unless you don't lose weight. You know, they would be really specific about the guidance they'd give you. Or they would say, hey, don't take that job. That's not the right job for you. You're going to do better in this job. You're going to learn more. You're going to be able to contribute more. And so they were transparent in a way that was um, um, like, you know, they weren't trying to make me them. And I think that's really important in your mentoring is you're not out there trying to make mini me's. It's not going to be this, like you said, it's not going to be the same path for everybody. It's not going to be the same goals and desires for everybody. And so when you mentor somebody, you really have to know them as a person. And what is it that makes them tick? You know, what is it that makes Brian tick? Is it time with his family? Is it, that Brian wants to be the next COO, whatever it is, right? And then you kind of go walk the dog back from there and help them get there, finding the path that's going to be best for them, not necessarily the way you would have done it or the way you did do it. And so you kind of have to take each person's um, kind of uniqueness and say, okay, well, how do I make this unique person the best leader that they can be and the best, um, uh, vi- not vision, but the best um, um form of leader that they can be, which may be different from every other leader we have out there right now. Just you maximizing I mean? their talent. Exactly. And so, and you have to find then opportunities that build on that as they iteratively grow up and in the organization, or, or you may mentor somebody that's not even in your organization, but in your same kind of professional development field. Something that you, something that you said there, I want to make sure I call out because it, it might not be obvious to people, but you talked about you, you having blunt leaders that said things like you need to watch your weight or you shouldn't go there. You should go here. And I think 
the lesson there, in my opinion, is you need to be receptive. You need to be open right. and receptive and not take certain things personally. And, 100%. and as a leader, you have to know who you can speak to like that, right? Who's going to yeah. receive that and who's not. But as, as the person on the other side, you have to understand, and, and we talk about this actually um, at SoCure all the time, you have to really assume positive intent, in my opinion. Yes. If you have that leader, you have to assume positive intent and they might be being blunt and it might be hard to hear, but you need to receive it in a way that that helps you understand too, that they're looking out for your best interests and you might not like what they're saying, but you have to receive it and assimilate it and take action on it. So being in yeah. that situation, being ready to receive, I think is so important. And I think people could have missed that in that in that anecdote that you told for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, how you do that as a leader or mentor is when you start having that conversation, it's about transparency. It's about having good communication skills. So you say things like, hey, I'm going to tell you a couple of things today that you may take personally, and I don't want you to take them personally. I want you to take them on board in the main manner that I'm giving them to you. I know that if you fix these things or you work on these things, people are going to see you in a different way. They're going to perceive your performance in a different way. You're going to have more success. And so while it may be a little tough to hear, I want you to hear it. You can do what you want with the advice. You don't have to take my advice. I'm going to give you the best advice that as a mentor, I think you need to hear because that's my job. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to give you the best advice professionally and personally. Right. And so, but you don't have to take it. You don't have to do any of it, you know, but, but here's what I'm going to tell you. And here's why I think it's important. So providing the context to Brian is very helpful in those kinds of situations. I think, I mean, being able to receive it, but also being able to receive opportunities and, um, I remember you were talking about the significant moments. And one of the things that popped into my head was there's, there's also significant moments across your career, right? And, right. and ones that really might've taken Danelle down one path versus another. Can you kind of put your finger on what some of those moments were and, and how sure. you were able to make yourself kind of able to take advantage of those opportunities when they came? Yeah. So let me give you a really good example. So I was a communications officer in the Navy. And the one place I always wanted to work was the White House Communications Agency. And so I made myself very competitive by taking jobs that helped me learn equipment and stuff that they use there. It was very mobile equipment. It's very tactical. And usually they used warrant officers, which were different kind of officers than I was, right? And so um, I got selected to work there. And then about two weeks before I was supposed to report, they said that they had to cancel my orders because... My husband was from Columbia and they couldn't get the clearance approved, the Yankee white clearance approved for me to work there, which is a very high clearance. And they kind of thought that might be an issue, but they thought they could give me a waiver. So I was devastated because that's like the one job I wanted. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I'm two weeks out. I'm supposed to be reporting to this command and now I have no orders. And and but at that moment, I realized, too, that, you know, that failure was was OK, because I have the best husband in the world. And, you know, no matter what happens, I'm much better off with the best husband in the world than the job I think I should have had. So at that point, I found another job where I ended up working for a gentleman who became, he ended up becoming both Paycom and Centcom at one point, but he became my mentor. I still talk to him about once a week. And because of him, he dragged me along to all these other opportunities that he wanted me to have and where I was helpful for him in the Navy. And I was also very good for me. And had I not lost that job at WACA, the White House Communications Agency, I would have never met him. I would have never had those opportunities. So the biggest, the thing I thought was my biggest professional failure and so disappointing turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. But you have to go in that with your eyes open and your blinders off to say, okay, let me look around. Let me look for that other opportunity that I wouldn't have seen, wouldn't have been looking for had I not had that failure. 
No, I, I totally agree with you. And it's so hard to see it in the moment, right? Right, I, right. I, tr I try to remind myself of that all the time. If something doesn't go my way, that there's probably a reason for it. And, right. and I need to not be so aggressively looking for it. Just keep going down the path that I'm going down. And and it at the end, hindsight's always 2020. And you look back and you're like, I see exactly why that happened now. I see this exactly. is exactly where I'm supposed to be, or this is exactly what, what was supposed to happen. And it, and stop. It's, it's hard though when you're in the moment, like you said, though, because sometimes you can get so focused on what you think is best for you and what you think is the only choice for you that's going to be the number one thing and you get so focused there that you, you can't take the blinders off you can't yeah. see other opportunities that are just passing you by i th I think of that as like being at the center of the donut right you can't yeah you can't right, see the right, outside when right. you're in, when you're in the hole so um no it's it's so interesting to hear i mean that we i think we all have those those moments in our career or in our life that we thought it was just going to go that way and, and you know what it went the exact opposite and it could have been devastating but you kind of pick up the pieces and and make the best of it. And then if you do that, other opportunities will happen. And then exactly. to to the point of my question, you have to just be ready for those opportunities to happen and go. You right. can't be so worried about what you missed out on. You have to be ready to take advantage of kind of what's coming. And that's so yep. important. Every DM, seize the day. Absolutely. What can I do with that? Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, one of the one of the other things that you said during your your daily mentor, let's call them daily mentor briefs is, and I thought this was so interesting, you talked about the difference between innovation and creativity because they, right. they get conflated. And uh, I love how you it's, it was put, creativity is kind of thinking in an innovative way, whereas innovation is actually acting doing on it, it and yeah. actually doing it. Is that something that you kind of learned across your career as well? Oh yeah, totally. Like, you know who drives me crazy are what I call the gifts, the good idea fairies. There are people <laughs> who will sit around and throw out good ideas and expect everybody to pick it up and start running with it and make it happen. Those people drive me completely insane because it's real easy to sit around and be the king of good ideas, right? Or to poke holes in everybody else's ideas. That's even easier to do. And people think they're geniuses when they do that. The ones that are true geniuses are, to me are the Steve Jobs or those kind of people of the world or Elon Musk, even though he's kind of crazier than a pile of monkey nuts. But <laughs> From an innovation perspective, he's very innovative, you know, but because they actually make things happen. You know, they take the creativity of an idea and they turn it into some sort of reality, something that is physical, that is concrete, that is a process, that is something that actually happens. That's innovation, you know, and innovation is also the intersecting points of multiple creative thoughts that you may have. That becomes true transformational innovation, not just novel or single innovation, serial innovation is what I would call it. So you can have two transformational innovation when you have a confl confluence of several creative ideas at once, but you have to have people who are willing to take the creative ideas and make them happen. And that's really hard to find the, and sometimes it's a handoff. The creator and the innovator are not the same. So for example, Walt Disney was a very good creator and he handed it off to his brother Roy to do the business. And that's the only reason they were successful, right? So sometimes you, have, you can have a team or a partnership that can you can do that handoff on between creativity and innovation, but you have to have be able to execute on it. No, I and I love that because I, it always makes me think of watching because I'm I'm a little younger than you, so I wasn't alive when when the Apollo 13 situation happened. But I, I think of when I when I'm watching that movie and I hear the story of um, them being at, 
in Houston and they're going back and they're taking all the pieces and they're being creative, right? But they're also right, tactically right. figuring out, okay, we need to be innovative here. We need to figure out a way to build something that is going to get them home. Like now, like, like to now. save their lives. Yeah, exactly. So instead of just sitting back thinking, oh, we could we, we could do this and this and this, they're literally rolling their sleeves up in there and, and tactically doing it. And I think that finding people that are like that, it, that's the challenge. You can find smart people. You can find people that can make that theoretical idea um, kind of pop up, but the people that can actually make it happen are, are so rare in my opinion. Well, and that's why as a leader, you need to be really careful about the behavior you reward is what you want repeated. So if you reward people who are simply creative, you're rewarding the wrong thing. You've got to reward the innovators that make it happen. You know, so if you put all your juice, like in providing your bonuses or your promotions or your best performance appraisals to people who are creative, then you're missing the boat. So it also in your 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 daily briefs, you use the word grateful a lot. You talk about gratitude. And one of the things I'm really curious about is is as you've gone through this this health journey, that kind of again, it was a, a fork in the road and it took you in a probably a, a direction that you didn't you didn't expect. I'm curious to know what has this journey, as you reflected on it, made you grateful for? Yeah, so you know, I've always been a pretty grateful person. It's really funny, actually, because two days before I um, found out I had the cancer and I, and I had the brain surgery, like, within 24 hours, it was really quick. That's how bad it was. But about two days before, we, my husband and I had been walking, and I said, you know what? I'm just grateful that we're vertical, that I can hold your hand, and that we're walking, you know, and that I can walk. And those are little things we take for granted, you know, the fact that you can see that you can just use both arms and hug your family. And so I've always been kind of a grateful person in general, just for small things, because I know life is very precious and things can be taken away at a moment's notice. Just because I've seen it happen with friends in the past, I've had you know, terrible things happen. It's the older you get, you just kind of see those things happen in the course of life. Mm -hmm. But what it's made it important for me is like, you know, when I first got diagnosed with the cancer, it was super hard because, you know, as soon as I came out of surgery, like I got diagnosed and then within like 24 hours, I had my head ripped open. And when I woke up, I couldn't walk anymore either. So I would have been okay with just having brain cancer, frankly. But the fact that I couldn't walk or use my left arm made it super hard because now I'm completely an independent person who is no longer independent. And so for the first week or so, that was really hard. And I was getting kind of depressed and, you know, it was, it was very, very hard to accept. But then I started to think to myself, you know what? My right arm wasn't affected. I can still type. I can still do my board work. I can still do my nuggets every day. I can still hug my husband. You know, I can still all these things, you know? And so even though I can't walk anymore, I'm still lucky. There's people who would probably give a, give anything to be able to use their right arm. You know what I mean? Or to be able to speak and have their cognitive abilities still. I was really glad that it just affected the physical abilities on my left side and not my cognitive abilities. Cause that would have been really hard if I still couldn't do my work. You know what I mean? And so or just be able to do a podcast with you and have a nice conversation with you, Brian. I mean, this kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I started to change my perspective to say, okay, what am I going to be grateful for today? I'm going to be grateful that I'm vertical. I'm going to be grateful that I'm, you know, snuggling with my mother on the couch for 30 minutes, you know, and the couch that's not big enough for two, but we'll make it for two. You know what I mean? And so you just have to be grateful for small moments, things that may seem insignificant, but they actually are the most significant thing that you'll do that day. What shocked you about the experience? Um, well, it's shocking in that, you know, you realize we always think we're going to have more time, right? 
like I just retired three years ago. I assumed I'd be around till 80 or 90, right? And what's shocking to me is how quickly your life can change in just 24 hours. Now I went from, just got back from a safari in Africa to can't walk, can't use my left arm, have a brain tumor that's probably gonna kill me. You know what I mean? And so how fast your life can change. That's why you should never take any moment that you have for granted. Don't take any day and say, well, I'll just wait and do that tomorrow. No, you know what? Do it today. Give yourself the reason to do it today because you may not have tomorrow. You're not promised all those tomorrow. You know what I mean? So to me, that's been the most shocking. The hardest part is just how quickly everything can change. But by the same token, you just have to be flexible in your mind and quickly adapt yourself to what you can appreciate about the situation that you're left with. I've been in in situations where sometimes I'll look back and think, wow, like this, this or this was really preparing me for for what I'm doing right now. And I had no clue. But you know what? Without those skills or without whatever whatever struggle I went through before, exactly, I wouldn't be prepared for this. During this period right. of time, do you ever think back and think, wow, like I never saw it, but but I needed that for here, or I wouldn't be the same person now if I didn't go through X, Y, and Z before. I think what I, it made me appreciate was that I never waited to do anything. Like I didn't put stuff off. I didn't say, I'm going to do that when I retire. I'm going to do that 10 years. I just did it. You know? So it made me appreciate that I made those choices along the way and I don't have regrets. Totally, totally understand that. Um, Danelle, I can't thank you enough for, for the time before we let you go though. Um, at the end of every episode, we do a final five, five questions okay. I ask all my guests. Um, so I'm excited to get some of your your answers for these. The first question, what's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Make lemonade out of lemons. That's that was from my mentor. Yep. It's a good one. So whatever the, situation you're with, make lemonade. What about the worst advice you've ever gotten? The worst advice I ever got was um, from a lady who was uh, an executive officer, and she was trying to... Uh, give me some leadership advice. She was an awful leader and I won't get into all the details, but I just kind of let it go in one year. Who is someone in history that you would like to have a conversation with right now? Oh, Walt Disney. Everybody always asks me who my inspiration is. And they expect it to be, you know, like some big, you know, naval hero or something like that. But it's actually Walt Disney because anybody who can look at Swampland in Florida and see flying elephants and laughing children and parents having fun with their kids. And then he makes that happen, Right. He's the guy who's the innovator, not just the creator. He makes it happen. That's the guy I would really want to have lunch with. I remember watching the movie um, Saving Saving Mr. Banks, where they kind of go oh, into yeah, the yeah, process yeah. of of him kind of getting Mary Poppins to the screen. And it was really interesting to see. He he really was like an orchestra conductor in how he did exactly. everything. There's so many different pieces, and you're absolutely right. And he's someone that people always point back to that they want to remind you. He also failed first. He, oh, yeah. Oswald he the failed, Rabbit before Mickey yeah, Mouse. Yeah. Fell flat on his face and then came up with, with the Mickey Mouse idea. And, and yep. now, lo and behold, Disney World. So, um, no, that's a, that's a great one. Um, what is inspiring you right now? What inspires me right now is the innovation that we see in AI, honestly. And some of the technology that's out there. How that can be life-changing for people, even like genome therapy, like with cancer. And the stuff that they can do with technology and computing is just amazing. And I think there's just so many opportunities for so many walks of life to be completely transformed. 
that's a good one. I know it's, I think it's going to be really cool to see because it's moving at such a fast pace too. Exactly. That's almost, almost part. too fast, but it's moving at a fast yeah. pace and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how, um, how that's going to impact the entire world. That's impacting everyone. Yeah. It's exponentially accelerating and converging technology. Those yep. convergent points were going to be so transformational. So we got to watch out for those and jump on them. And last question, where do you self-educate? So I don't read a lot of books. I'll be honest with you. I read a lot more online because in my field, technology, things change so fast by the time the book's out, it's usually dated. Mm -hmm. So normally I read most of the stuff that I read online. Um, so I find that, you know, articles on emerging technology, and then I start to think about, okay, how would I apply that to a business company that I work with or for the media. What kind of impact could that have on the people processing technology that, 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 and the mission of that organization? So Danelle, again, I can't thank you enough. I, I know for all of us, time is obviously most precious, but um, for you especially, and, and the fact that you took an hour out of your day to, to come sit down with me and have this conversation and help my listeners kind of learn more about how to be better leaders and, and better people in general, um, it's, it's an incredible gift and I'm so grateful that we were able to have you on. So thank you so much. No, thank you, Brian. And, and the biggest thing too, is for your leaders out there, just treat yourself, be your authentic self. I mean, don't let other people tell you what it means to be a leader. I'll be honest with you. I'm a retired animal, but I drive a car that I painted like a big checkerboard and has a big Mickey mouse right on the hood. People are like, that's an unprofessional car. Well, not if you're a clown, it's not, but I mean, I don't care what my car looks like. If little kids see it and they get inspired that they don't have to have a blue or black or red car. You know what I mean? And so just be your authentic self no matter what that is. Don't let anybody else try to influence you about how you should stand, how you should walk, what kind of car you should drive, how you should act a certain way. Just be true to yourself and the people who follow you will really appreciate that. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for, for taking the time. Um, I know sure, I know people got a lot out of it. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittis Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. <laughs>